One other announcement that Jim did not mention, that is that starting the first week of September, which is not this week, but next week, we will have our midweek Bible class on Tuesday night instead of Wednesday night. There are two trips I have to make in September, which makes puts me out of here on a Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday, and I figured that instead of confusing the congregation with which week are we here on Tuesday night and which week are we here on Wednesday night, we would just make it the whole month, make it simple. And so for the calendar month of September, it's going to be on Tuesday night. Now, I just was trying to look at the calendar. We don't have an October calendar in the uh, bulletin, but when is the when's the last September? When's the 30th? Is that on the 30th of September? Not August, September. When's the 30th of September? It's a Tuesday. That week we will meet on Wednesday night. <laughs> From that point on, okay? Wanted to make except for that last week. So we just got foiled by the calendar by one day. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He will direct your paths. They that wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we begin our study this morning, we need to make sure that we're in fellowship. So we always take a few moments of silent prayer for the opportunity to use 1 John 1.9 if necessary. 1 John 1.9 states that if we confess, which means to admit or acknowledge in the privacy of our priesthood, our any known sins to God the Father, then he instantly, on the basis of the fact that we are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ and Christ has already paid the penalty for all of our sins, we're instantly forgiven. All sins unknown and unmentioned, all those forgotten sins, are instantly cleansed and forgiven as well. We're restored to fellowship. We recover the filling of the Holy Spirit so we can resume our forward advance in the spiritual life and study the Word of God under the teaching ministry of God the Holy Spirit. So we have a few moments of silent prayer, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you that we can gather together as a body of believers this morning to fellowship around the teaching of your word. There is no form of worship more significant. There is no form of worship that gives you more honor and more glory than to dedicate ourselves to the study of your word that we might learn to exchange the human viewpoint thinking in our soul for the divine viewpoint information revealed in your word that we may think and therefore live in a way that reflects your character and brings honor and glory to your person. Father, we thank you that we live in a nation where we have these freedoms. We thank you for those who founded this nation, for their uh, dedication and devotion to biblical truth, for their understanding of absolutes from your word as the ultimate orientation of all law and all government. Father, we thank you for those who have served in the military throughout the decades who have made the ultimate sacrifice to die in order to preserve our liberties. We continue to pray for those serving in the military today, serving overseas in many different ways. We pray that you would watch over them. We pray for their leaders, that you would give them wisdom and courage to do what is necessary to defeat the enemy. We pray that those who are working within the realm of intelligence gathering would have the skill to get the right information and correctly interpret it, and that you would reveal to them the information needed that we might be able to accomplish our task. We know that the security of this nation is not 
ultimately grounded in our military or our security forces, but in you. We're also reminded of the principle that as goes the believer, so goes the nation, and that the greatest thing that we can do as individuals for preserving the freedom of our nation is to make the study of your word and the application of your word in our own lives the number one priority, that we need to make our goal the goal of spiritual advance to spiritual maturity. Now, Father, as we study your word this morning, we pray that you would help us to understand these things, to challenge us with them, to give us a greater understanding of what you are doing in our own lives. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. This morning we're going to continue our study in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, but before we do that, we're not in chapter 12, remember, we're going through the ascension and session as background of the chapter. It will be another two or three weeks before we start exegeting chapter 12. I wanted to give the congregation a brief report on my trip to Southern California the last couple of days. Thursday morning I got up at the early hour of O dark 30 or before O dark 30, it was O three thirty. Headed out to Providence to catch a 6 o'clock flight to John Wayne Airport. I always love it when I get to fly into John Wayne Airport. There's just something about the sound of that that resonates in, in the soul of a Texan, you know. So Chafer uh, Seminary is located down in Orange County, so we had a governing board uh, workshop retreat, which turned out to be much more productive, I think, than any of us anticipated because all but one member was able to make it. Therefore, we... Uh, determined that it was an official meeting, and we passed a lot of resolutions, and we determined a lot of things, and and there are a lot of challenges before Chafer Seminary. It's a fledgling seminary right now. I I don't know the exact numbers for this fall, but there's a student body of around 45 with about 8 to 10 of those being full-time students. There are three full-time paid staff, and there needs to be more. There are tremendous needs that we need to be praying for for the seminary. The strength of the future of the pulpits of this country are going to be determined by the strength of the seminaries. And we're living in a transition time. Seminaries generally have a history, at least in our civilization, of about 75 to 100 years. You can start seeing the cracks in the wall at about 60 to 70 years, and you start seeing them crumble by 90 to 100 years, and that's been pretty much demonstrated through a number of studies. And most of the schools that conservative evangelical fundamentalists sent their pastors to for training uh, in the latter part of the 20th century were schools that were, for the most part, founded in the early part of the century. Schools like Dallas Seminary, founded in 1923, uh, some of these seminaries for the Conservative Baptist Association were founded, in, I think, in the 40s and 50s. Others were founded as early as the early 60s, but they were a little broader in their orientation. In our tradition, we have sent most of our pastors to schools like Dallas Theological Seminary, and the cracks have been appearing in the dike there for some time. So... <laughs> For those of you who don't know, a number of us who came out of a more doctrinal teaching churches saw the need for a new seminary, and Schaefer Seminary was founded back in the early 90s. And it has gradually grown under the leadership of Dr. George Meisinger, who's the president now. And we have made the decision that the school needs to actively pursue accreditation. That's really the next step. So we're taking a number of steps to do that. Now, all of that entails one thing. Money, you got it. And so we need to pray that the Lord would continue to supply the resources. For the first time in our history, the school is suffering a little bit of a deficit this year, but a lot of ministries are because this is a time uh, when the economy's been been down. But we know that God always supplies the resources for His plan, so we just trust in that. They part of a, in getting accreditation. Part of what you have to have is a library, a research library that is uh, built for graduate research. And today, some, one man raised the question, well, with electronic libraries that are available, that should make it easier. No, because most accrediting committees, what they've done is they've said, well, for research, you need a hard library plus an electronic library. So that's one thing. You need to have accredited faculty with accredited THM degrees or better. You need to have a faculty, if you're if you're offering a master's in theology program, 
you need to have a certain percentage of your professors with Ph.D. or Ph.D. level degrees. Under most accrediting systems, you, the, the courses can only be taught by a professor who has the next level degree. So if you're offering a master's in theology, the next level degree is a Ph.D. or Th.D. And the problem is that in doctrinal churches there has been an abysmal failure to do two things. One, to challenge young people to pursue full-time professional ministry as a career choice. They have spiritual gifts, and that's one of the ways that you develop your spiritual gifts. And if you wait till you're 35 or 40 to wake up to it, well, it's too late. You've made too many life decisions related to marriage and family and other obligations that make the training difficult. Secondly, there are people who are shallow, superficial, and don't understand the realities who somehow have communicated the idea that the seminaries, because there are certain problems that we've all noted in seminaries, that, well, I'm not going to go and have my thinking spoiled by going to a seminary and having to listen to some professor who doesn't know what he's talking about. Well, every single one of us have had to go through that experience, and that's part of the training. It's part of what pastors go through. It teaches you humility. You have to have humility and teachability before you can ever go forward. The old adage about a leader is you can't lead well unless you've learned to follow is true about a pastor. If you can't sit in a classroom and suffer through with humility through a lecture with a professor that probably doesn't know as much about that particular topic as you do or think you do, then you don't have any business eventually getting in the pulpit because you'll make the same kind of mistakes and there'll be people in the congregation and say, you know, he needs to work on that a little bit. Teaches you how to think also, how to think critically and to think about why you believe what you believe about a particular passage as opposed to a well-articulated position from a double or triple Ph.D. who's uh, lecturing in the classroom. And furthermore, we need to have a high standard for pastors. And somehow we've gotten the idea that if you sit under a man's ministry for X number of years and you've learned everything he has to teach, that that somehow qualifies you to get in the pulpit. And it doesn't. It never has and it never will. You do not learn how to study the Bible, how to exegete the Scriptures, and how to teach by listening to the results of somebody else's study, somebody else's exegesis, and listening to someone else teach. You only learn to teach by teaching under the uh, control and guidance of a teacher. You only learn how to exegete by going through the process and having someone who's mastered the skills grade your papers and point out where you're making mistakes and how you need to develop and strengthen your methodology. So there is no question that men need to go to seminary. They need to put themselves in a classroom situation. One of the things that's happening today with the Internet is it develops a lot of uh, distance learning options, and we're looking at that at Schaefer, and that was one of the things that we came up with is try to explore that, and that, of course, develops technology. Oh, my, we're back to that same issue again, finances. So we just need to pray for the finances of the seminary. We need to pray that the Lord would provide that. We also have another need, and that is that the man who uh, has been teaching Hebrew is uh, is also a computer programmer, and he is maybe having to leave the area. His full-time job is uh, supports him, so he can teach Hebrew part-time. And we need to pray that the Lord would either provide a job for him in Southern California so he can continue to teach Hebrew, or that the Lord would provide the finances for the seminary to hire a full-time faculty member. So we need to continue to pray for the seminary, and there's a lot entailed. It takes five or six years to take to go all the way through the accreditation process. And one of the reasons you get accredited, it used to not not always be true, and I used to say, well, that's just a state requirement. But you, sometimes you have to face some realities, and that is that if you're going to produce graduates that can in turn be hired at other seminaries and teach at other seminaries and impact and at others with their, their teaching, then if other schools are accredited, then they have to hire graduates of accredited schools. And these are just the realities. We need to recognize that 
that just as a, a plumber has to be licensed and you're not going to hire let just anybody come in and work on the plumbing or electrical work in your house, you want somebody who is qualified. And so often we've lowered the standards so much that we let men get in the pulpit. You know, pastors used to be called the doctors of the soul. I always thought that was a great term, the doctor of the soul, because it is the pastor who works on our soul, so to speak, through the teaching of the Word. And so we let just any Jake Leg come along who's been sitting around in church for a while get up in the pulpit and teach when he may not have the sense God gave a goose about theology. And he's just simply uh, regurgitating and parroting what somebody else said. And I could embarrass a few people by going through a number of contemporary examples of folks who have not had seminary training and not learned to critically think and have uh, made some uh, appalling mistakes in the pulpit simply because they've repeated the mistakes of someone else. But we won't go there this morning. Anyway, we need to remember to pray for uh, Dr. Meisinger and uh, Chafer Seminary and especially as they begin to start the fall semester here in the next week and pray for the student body. So we need to keep that as a high priority. All right, we are studying the doctrine of the ascension and the session of Christ. Last Sunday morning, someone commented that I sort of hit the ground running. I think there was a sort of a side remark there that, well, that would be the last time you're going to go on vacation for two weeks if you're going to come back and be that wired. We've got a lot to cover here. There is, as I stated last time, the background, the Old Testament background that New Testament writers appeal to when they are developing the doctrine of the ascension and session of Christ. Come, the, the background comes out of about four Psalms, Psalm 2, Psalm 132, uh, Psalm 110, Psalm 68, as well as Daniel 7. These passages are some of the most quoted passages in the New Testament. Now, that tells you right away that the writers of the New Testament, under the teaching of God the Holy Spirit, saw the centrality of these passages. And they constantly went back to those two verses in these four Psalms and in Daniel 7 and borrowed from the imagery in those Psalms to develop the understanding of the ascension and the doctrine of the session of Christ during the church age. We have to pull that together. That's not easy for a lot of folks. That's not easy for your pastor. I remember when I was in seminary and was taking Christology, and we went through many of these passages, and it it's a web of passages that when you bring them together, they really open up some important doctrines that are rarely, if ever, developed. And there has to, and it implies a lot of work and necessitates a lot of work in order to pull all of these things out. And so, last time I started off with, and I hit a lot of topics at first because I'm wanting to give you that overview. If you just get down sometimes in any subject and you start looking, get your microscope out and you start looking at all the details too much, you lose sight of the overall picture. You don't approach a jigsaw puzzle by just grabbing the box and throwing all the all the pieces out on the table and then throw the box top in the corner and sit down and start looking at the pieces. You spend a certain amount of time looking at the picture on that box top so you have some idea of what you're trying to do. And that's what I will be doing this week, next week, the next week, is starting off each time with a good review to help us have that overview before we get into some of the details. So let's just go over that nine-point or ten-point summary I gave at the beginning last time. What we saw in the initial part of our study was that when Jesus came at the first advent, it wasn't clear from Old Testament prophecy that there would be two advents. There's an ambiguity in the text. Now, sometimes we're not careful with that word. We think God ought to be clear. But, see, there was a purpose to that ambiguity, and that was it allowed for real contingency and a legitimate offer of the kingdom to Israel at the first advent. And at the first advent, they rejected Christ, but they expected when the Messiah would come that it would be a one-coming Messiah, and he would come to establish the kingdom. The Old Testament presents the Messiah coming to do two things, to suffer and to establish a glorious kingdom. 
But the Jews, point number two, the Jews misunderstood the prophecies about the glories and the sufferings of the Messiah, and they wanted the crown before the cross. They wanted the glorious Messiah before the suffering Messiah. Therefore, they had their priorities wrong, and their priorities were wrong because they they had adopted the religious teaching of the Pharisees, and it completely distorted the spiritual life of Israel. They had opted for religion instead of a relationship with the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. When John the Baptist came on the scene, he, Jesus, and the disciples all proclaimed the same message. This is point number three. John the Baptist, Jesus, and the disciples all proclaimed a message of repentance, that is, change of thinking, directed to Israel and not to the Gentiles. Remember those passages where Jesus sends the disciples to the house of Israel and not to the Gentiles. And their message was consistent. John came with the message, Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus announced, Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And the issue was thought change for the Jews in order to bring in the kingdom. They had to reject religion and change their mind about the traditions of the Pharisees and trying to earn righteousness. Remember, we're not saved by doing good. You're not saved by morality. You're not saved because you don't commit certain sins. You are saved because you possess the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. I don't care how good you are. I don't care how religious you are. I don't care how moral you are. The Bible says that the best that we do is garbage in the sight of God. All our works of righteousness are filthy rags. Not the works of unrighteousness, but the works of righteousness are filthy rags in the sight of God. Therefore, the only solution is to possess a righteousness that is, does not come from our own uh, works, our own ability. We have to possess someone else's righteousness. So it's salvation. Jesus gives us his, his righteousness. And this was the core of their, their thought change. They had to reject the religious system of the Pharisees and shift to a grace-oriented system. But they did not do that. And point number four, near the midpoint of his public ministry, the Jewish religious leaders accused Jesus of being empowered by Satan. Now, many people trusted Christ as Messiah, but the official position of the Jewish religious leaders, the representative leaders of the nation, rejected him, and the result of that was a postponement of the kingdom. Now, let me go back to point three a minute. In point three... I noted that the message was, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now that word for at hand means near, it's close. It does not mean it is here. Now that interpretive issue is crucial in the debates between covenant theology and dispensationalism, between amill, postmill, and progressive dispensationalists. They all want to argue that the kingdom of heaven is already here, that it began in some sense with that first coming. But the word does not mean that. It means it is near. It is close. It is uh, at the door, so to speak. We'll come back and look at that in more detail as we go through this. This whole concept of the understanding the kingdom is a is an situation that undergirds this. This is why you have to get into theology, and theology is a real brain cell burner for most people, is because you have to deal with all of these connections and implications of different passages. That's why I love it so. It demands thought. See, God doesn't want a bunch of dummies who just sit around emoting, raising their hands, singing praises, and talking about how good they feel about Jesus. God wants believers who are thinking deeply and profoundly about what he has revealed. And that's real worship. Real worship isn't just isn't emoting about Jesus, which is what 99.9% of modern Christians think and why they fall apart every time something looks tough in their life. So Jesus is rejected and that calls for the postponement of the kingdom and this is such this is the issue. Did he inaugurate the kingdom or did it get postponed? And the implications of that are profound. And they are profound for your spiritual life and how you understand spiritual gifts. Remember the context. We're introducing 
the study of spiritual gifts in 1 Corinthians 12, and we've gone to Ephesians 4 where Paul talks about Jesus ascending to heaven so he could give gifts to men. So the background for understanding the distribution of spiritual gifts is the ascension, and we have to understand why there was an ascension. Point number five in the summary, the result of Jesus' rejection was that he was crucified, buried, and resurrected. But the people of the kingdom had rejected their king, so the king now had to expand his base. If the the Jews had accepted Jesus as king, he still would have died as a substitutionary atonement for sin. But what the circumstances would have been around that death, we don't know. That never happened. But he still would have had to die. We know that. The prophecies were clear that there would be a suffering Messiah. But if they had accepted his offer of the kingdom, the kingdom would have come at that time, and the people of the kingdom, the Jews, would be those who would rule with and would be reigning and ruling with Christ in that kingdom. But something happened. The people of the kingdom rejected the king. And so now the king has to get a new people who will rule and reign with him. And that was not foreseen or it was not revealed in the Old Testament. But there is a certain amount of ambiguity there which allowed for that. And I am not saying that you find the church in the Old Testament. What I am saying is that the terminology in the Old Testament allows for the fact that there would be this postponement and this shift. And that's what we're looking at in our study of these various psalms. Okay, point six. Since his people rejected him, the next stage in the plan was to bring in a new people to fulfill certain objectives related to the angelic conflict. Now, God's plan was always to bring in the church. It wasn't revealed in the Old Testament, but he that nevertheless, that does not affect the legitimacy and the reality of the offer. And so we said the new people would be based on a spiritual heritage and not a racial heritage. So to bring this about, point seven, Jesus ascended in order to send the Holy Spirit to give birth to the church at Pentecost. John 17:6, Jesus said, I have to ascend and before I can send the Holy Spirit. And then point eight, immediately after the ascension, which took just a few minutes, for Jesus to ascend from the earth, pass through the physical heavens, and arrive at the right hand of God the Father. It is an emphasis on his humanity. In his physical body, he went through space. He went on a journey. We looked at the word poruomai that is used in Acts 1 of going on a journey, starting in point A, going to point B, and he arrives at a location in his humanity. Remember, in his deity, he's omnipresent. So we're talking about his physical human body, that it arrives in a location, and God honors him and gives him the highest position in the universe, and he is seated at the right hand of the throne of God above all other powers, authorities, angelic and human. This is called the session of Christ, his seating, based on the Latin word sessionum, the act of seating. Now, point nine, during the session, Jesus is not passive, but is involved in calling out a new people who will play a unique role in establishing a testimony of God's grace and power in the angelic conflict, who are being prepared to rule and reign with him in the future kingdom. Now, this is the point that we are developing right now. In these Psalms, we're coming to understand the role of what's happening right now in Jesus calling out a new people for himself in preparation for ruling and reigning with him in the future. And then, point 10, once the church is complete and has completed her mission, then the Messiah will return in victory and establish and inaugurate, keyword, technical word, inaugurate the Jewish kingdom, the millennial kingdom. So I reiterate that this is a, a subject that pulls together many different strands of studies that we have had over the past five years. And if you want to get some more background on dispensationalism and covenant theology, then I encourage you to get the tape series. It's about 27 or 28 lessons, and go back and listen to that. 
Now, in the New Testament, we looked at, and I covered last time, some key passages on the ascension and session, passages such as Hebrews 4.14, Hebrews 3.13, Hebrews 1.13, Hebrews 1.5, Hebrews 7.17, Acts 5.31, Hebrews 10.12 and 13. Acts 20, 30, and 30, um, or excuse me, Acts 2, 30 and 34, and Acts 3, 20 and 21 are all passages that go through and quote or refer back to Psalm 2, Psalm 110, and Psalm 132. These, this is why we have to pull this together. So what we're seeing is that the New Testament doctrine related to the ascension and session of Christ pulls together these four messianic psalms, Psalm 2, Psalm 89, Psalm 132, Psalm 110, plus Daniel 7. Secondly, the term, we see that the terms Son of Man and Son of God, which are titles for Jesus Christ, are interconnected in this doctrine, and they are related to the term Son of David and the title King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Under the title Son of Man, there's an emphasis on Jesus as being genuine humanity. That comes out of Daniel 7. Son of God, he is the begotten of God, Psalm 2. He's the Son of David, that's Psalm 89, which is a reflection or meditation on the Davidic covenant. And then the title King of Kings and Lord of Lords is applied to him in the at the end of the tribulation, at the second coming, which gives him a broader people than the term Son of David. Son of David is his royal title related to his position, ruling and reigning over Israel. King of kings and Lord of lords is his title of his ruling and reigning over all nations, tribes, and people. Third, we'll see that the Davidic covenant is the foundation for understanding all of the above. And fourth, that a key element in understanding what's happening today is the background of the Melchizedekian priesthood from Genesis chapter 14 and its fulfillment in Christ. So all of that's just introduction. I'm just giving you an overview. We're going to take all these details, put them together in our study, and we'll see how they fit together. But I want you to understand the scope of this study, that most of the time when you think about the ascension and session of Christ, you think about the fact that, well, Jesus just ascended to the right hand of God the Father. He is currently seated at the right hand of God the Father, from whence he will come to judge the quick and the dead. That's the old uh, Apostles' Creed. It's more than that is what I'm trying to get across. It's more than the fact that at the right hand of God the Father, Jesus is currently involved in interceding for believers. It is more than the fact that he is just awaiting the time when he will come to judge. There is something happening during this time that is that he is doing in the life of each individual believer, and there is an importance and significance to this that is rarely ever brought out. So we continue the study today by looking by reviewing Daniel 7. Last time we looked at Daniel 7, which is one of the most important passages in the Old Testament related to future events. The symbolism in Daniel 2 and Daniel 7 relate to the kingdoms of men in the uh, picture, the drawing on the screen, what you have standing on the sort of the left side is a representation of that image in Daniel 2, which, which envisions the kingdoms of man as man looks at them. Remember, we studied it, the head of gold, the torso of, of uh, silver, and all of that represented these same kingdoms that are presented in Daniel 7, but from man's viewpoint. Man looks at these kingdoms as great and glorious and valuable, but in Daniel 7 they're presented as beasts. The first beast was a lion with the wings of eagles, and that represented the kingdom of Babylon. The second beast in Daniel 7 was the lopsided bear, which represented the medial Persian Empire. The fourth kingdom was the kingdom of Greece, the four-headed leopard. And then the fifth kingdom was a unique beast, an awesome and awful beast with ten horns. And that represented first the Roman Empire and its revival revival. 
in the future. This looks at these kingdoms from God's perspective that man is not normal. He is, he is depraved. He is a sinner. He's fallen. Therefore, he, the kingdoms that he produces are distorted. They are never going to be what they ought to be and what they could be because of the depravity of the human heart. There is no perfect political system. We'll touch on that a little more this morning. There's no p- perfect political system. There never has been. There never will be. You can, the best that you, man can get under various systems only works for a while before the depravity of the human heart begins to manifest itself and the system falls apart. There's no perfect economic system. You have the same problem. The problem that the Bible reveals in the Old Testament as you move through uh, Genesis to the end of the Old Testament is that you can't have a perfect kingdom because the people are flawed and the leadership is flawed and because everybody that's involved is a sinner and everyone operates on arrogance it, the whole system begins to become corrupted what is necessary is a perfect leader and that is foundational well in Daniel 7 last time we Looked at that, we came up with a couple of conclusions. Let's just look at a couple of verses. First of all, Daniel 7, 13, and 14 states, I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming, and he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. So Daniel is looking, he sees this vision, and he sees two people, the Ancient of Days and the Son of Man. The Ancient of Days is God the Father. The Son of Man, we now know, is the Lord Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, and this becomes a title for him that he picks up in the Gospels. And he is like a Son of Man, indicating that the leader of this new kingdom that will replace the other four is a man. He is a true human. He, because Jesus Christ was born sinless, he's a perfect man. He is not corrupted by sin. Therefore, all human kingdoms are represented as beastly in contrast to the true humanity of Jesus Christ who represents true humanity. And he came to, up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him, and his dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. So we just looked at that. We're not doing a study of Daniel 7. We did that in our study of Daniel. But we're going to extract some observations from this passage. First of all, the purpose is that ultimately every nation might serve him in this kingdom. So what we see is the nature of the future millennial kingdom is no longer restricted to simply a Jewish orientation. It has that, but it expands. It's not only going to be centered in Jerusalem, because as we'll see, the, the, the leader is on the throne of David on Mount Zion. The center point of all worship during the Millennial Kingdom is the Millennial Temple that will be constructed after the second coming of Christ. But the Jewish conception of the kingdom up to this point is primarily Jewish. What we're seeing here is that this is an expansion that's going to include all people. Now, when the Jewish scholars read this, all the implications of this were not evident to them. But it's clearly there in the passage. Daniel 7.18 states that, But the saints of the highest one will receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever for all ages to come. Now, let me note as just a sub point here, another observation, the kingdom is forever. That implies that the ultimate leader of this kingdom, the king who rules this kingdom, must himself be eternal. That will be important when we go get over to Psalm 2 in a minute. No human being, someone who is simply a man, simply a human, can qualify to have eternal life. The leader of this must be, be eternal. But the main point I want to emphasize out of, out of Daniel 7.18 is the term saints. This is the Hebrew word kadish. 
And it is a broad term. Some people always want to make the term saints refer to the same group of people. The term comes from the Hebrew root verb kadosh, which means to be sanctified. And it refers to sanctified ones. And you have to carefully understand the context to know who it's talking about. Because in the Old Testament, when it's talking about the saints, it's talking about Old Testament believers, which in most contexts is a reference to Jews. But when you get into the church age, and it uses the term saint, it is using it to refer to church age believers who are neither Jew nor Greek, because Jewishness, that racial factor, is no longer present in the church age because of the Jews have been temporarily set aside. God will restore the plan, but God's calling out a new people for himself, the church. So you have to look at how the word is used. Then, to make matters even more confusing, when you get into Revelation and it talks about the saints, it's talking about tribulation saints. You can't talk about the fact that just because it refers to saints in the midst of the tribulation that this is talking about church-age believers. It's just talking about those who are saved. And then, when you look at Daniel 7, there, the word clearly can have two implications. But it's a broad enough word and an ambiguous enough word to where you really have to be careful what it, what it is saying. It's clear from Daniel 7 that the saints of the Holy One, the saints of the Highest One, are going to be persecuted by that leader of the revived Roman Empire. He persecutes the saints of, the, of God. In that verse, the saints refers to tribulation saints, anyone who's a believer during the time of that revived Roman Empire. But when you look at verse 18 and it says, "...but the saints of the Highest One will receive the kingdom," That has to have a broader reference than simply tribulation saints. And we'll see why later on. But we know that when Jesus Christ returns to, to rule the kingdom, he will come with a body of believers, his bride, the church age, the, the church age believers. And he will establish the kingdom for the Jews, which includes the surviving tribulation saints. So when you look at this verse in Daniel 7:18, this word saints is broad enough to incorporate all these different groups that are brought together and have a role in the kingdom. That's why the term saint is not a technical term for any particular group. So it's broad enough and it's vague enough to include church-age believers who will come with him. Now, I'm not saying that this is talking about church-age believers per se. I did not say that the church is found in this passage. I'm simply saying this is a broad enough and ambiguous enough term that when you have the development of history into the tribulation, this word would, of course, include future church-age believers. It's no different from the fact that there was a certain amount of ambiguity in the initial uh, prophecies related to the coming of the Messiah. It didn't make it clear in the Old Testament that there would be two comings. It talked about his glories and it talked about his sufferings, but it didn't indicate clearly that there would be this, these two comings would be separated by at least 2,000 years. What made the difference was the volition of the Jews at the first coming. So God gave all the, revel- all the revelation of the Old Testament and left a certain amount of flexibility in there, which gave real volition to the uh, Jews at the first advent. Okay, the second main thing we noted last week in Daniel 7 was that in the verse 14 you have the phrase that the kingdom was given. At a point in time in the future, the kingdom is going to be given to the Lord Jesus Christ. That indicates that a time frame exists before that moment when he does not have dominion, a glory, or a kingdom. That means that there is a There's a period of time that will exist in history before Jesus Christ is given that kingdom. That means that if that is in the future, there is no kingdom now. 
And you will hear all kinds of people using that phrase, we are in the kingdom now, Jesus is the king now, and he's not. There is a point in time when he's given the kingdom, and that doesn't come, according to Daniel 7, until right before he returns to establish the kingdom. So we're not in that millennial kingdom now. We're in the period known as the mystery form of the kingdom, which is revealed by Jesus after his rejection by the Pharisees in Matthew 12. It's revealed in the parables of Matthew 13. So there's a mystery form. That's this holding time that we're talking about right now. And then the third thing we pulled out of Daniel 7 was that the passage teaches the establishment of the kingdom is yet future and will be accomplished through a what? The Son of Man, a truly human founder and leader who will be this worldwide leader. But it is not someone who is just a man. It is someone who is the combination of deity and humanity. He is the God-man. He is one who is undiminished deity and one who is also true humanity. And the fact of that is suggested in both Psalm 2 and Psalm 110, that this leader must be a unique leader, not just a man, but also fully God. So let's go to Psalm 2. Psalm 2, verse 1 says, why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? Now, David is the author of Psalm 2. David is the author of Psalm 2. We know this not because the, the psalm states it. Turn here to Psalm 2. There is no superscript at the beginning of the psalm telling us who the author is. However, the, the verse is quoted in Acts, in Stephen's speech in Acts, where he attributes this to David. So Scripture attributes the authorship of Psalm 2 to David. He is looking forward to a future event. It is a prophetic psalm. He says, Why, do the nations, why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing. The kings of the earth take their stand, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. So once again, we see two personages here. We see the Lord and his anointed. Anointed from the Hebrew word Mashiach, which is where we get the English transliteration Messiah. So here we see the picture of two personages in Acts chapter 2, and they are being opposed by the kingdoms of the earth. All of the human race is in antagonism to God and his Messiah. So all the rulers take counsel against him, and this is what they say. This is the orientation of mankind. Let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. Now, that's the orientation of man. He resists the authority of God. He wants to do everything he can to remove God from public discourse. We're seeing a prime example of that right now in this court case down in Alabama where they're trying to remove the statue to the Ten Commandments that are in the uh, atrium of the Supreme uh, Court building down there in Alabama. And all that is is a historical recognition that what undergirds Law and the concept of law historically in America is the Ten Commandments. Our founding fathers understood that, whether they were Christians or whether they were simply those who were influenced by the Christianity of that time, they all thought within a biblical framework. They were beginning, some were beginning to be influenced by the Enlightenment thought that was prevalent at the time, but even then they still under, they still thought within the framework of absolutes that there was an external, knowable, absolute reality. And even if they weren't a self-conscious Christian or, or, or had trusted in Christ, as some had not, such as Jefferson and some others, most of them had. And they understood that, and because they understood the corrupt nature of the human uh, soul, that it was corrupted by sin, and that therefore anything man did and any of the institutions that man established, that they had 
they, they were prone to corruption, and therefore there had to be an internal system of checks and balances in order to keep any group from becoming uh, too dominant. Now, an interesting thing is you have a similar dynamic in Switzerland because Switzerland was heavily influenced by the Reformation as well. And in Switzerland, they went so far to guarantee the separation of powers that they put them in different cities. Now, Switzerland's not all that bad, not, not all that large, but they wanted to make sure that you understood that the executive branch was not influenced by the, by the legislative branch or that they were not influenced by the judicial branch, so they separated them physically and geographically. Now, this is in Psalm 2-3, we see the recognition that the human heart is opposed to God and wants to remove divine authority from his life. He does not want God to speak to how he lives. And then we see God in the heavens laughing and scoffing. God has a great sense of humor. And when man shakes his fist at God, God's response is just to chuckle at the... Uh, insubordination of man and how useless it is. So the Lord scoffs at them, and then he will speak to them in his anger, verse 5, and terrify them in his fury, saying, But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. So as the nations rage against God in the future, and this is ultimately going to take place at the battle of Armageddon. Armageddon is a valley in the northern part of Israel, also known as the Valley of Esdralon, and it is outside of Megiddo. Actually, Armageddon is from the Hebrew Har Megiddo, which means the mountain of Megiddo. And it is there that the armies of the Antichrist, the armies of that fourth kingdom, will be gathered together in opposition to God and to destroy Israel, and that is the time in which Jesus Christ literally and physically returns to the earth and at Mount Zion just as he left, as we studied in Acts, Acts chapter 2. And he will be installed as and inaugurated as the king at that time. See, Psalm 2.6 is talking about the fact that it's at this future time that God says he has installed my king upon Zion. So it, the orientation time-wise is in the future. The, nation, the nations, the armies of the Antichrist have gathered, and God says, laughingly at them, he says, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. Now, this is where you have to use, this is the importance of literal interpretation. Everywhere else in the Bible, when you hear Zion, my holy mountain, it's talking about a physical piece of real estate located in Jerusalem. It is the temple mount. It is where the temple was located at the time of Solomon, the second temple under Zerubbabel, the Herodian temple during the time of Christ, the site of the Dome of the Rock now, which will be destroyed or removed in some way. There will be a tribulation temple that is a, a false temple established during the tri tribulation. But Jesus will return and we establish his kingdom from Mount Zion. He's not there now, is he? Where is he? He's at the right hand of God the Father in heaven. But what happens when you use spiritualized or allegorized interpretation, and this is what happens in every system of theology other than dispensational theology, in amillennialism, postmillennialism, what you do is Mount Zion is spiritualized to refer to the throne of God and the right hand of God. So that Jesus Christ is said somehow to be ruling from Mount Zion now from the right hand of God. If that's true, then we would be in some form of the kingdom now. But when you read the kingdom descriptions in Isaiah Jeremiah, that doesn't fit. So what we see from Psalm 2 is that this installation does not take place until the future. That's why I keep emphasizing the kingdom is, was not inaugurated when Jesus came the first time. It was offered, rejected, and it was postponed, and it's not inaugurated until the events referred to in verse 6. The word for installed is the cow perfect of the Hebrew word nasak, which means to set, to install, or to inaugurate a leader. And God says, at this future time, this future point of time in history, but as for me, 
I have installed or inaugurated my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. That's the first person speaking. Then the Lord's anointed begins to speak in verse 7, where he says, I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. So it's a conversation. First of all, God the Father says, I have inaugurated my king on Mount Zion. The response of the king is, I will announce the decree of the Lord. So it is God the Son who is speaking at this point, and he says, He, that is God the Father, said to me, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Now, this is another important thing to note, and that is the phrase, I have begotten you, because this goes, this establishes the principle of this, of the starting point. The Hebrew verb here, because of the uh, pointing of the verb, that is because of the, the vowels that are in the verb, could be taken as either a what is called a cow stem or it could be a hyphil. And the hyphil is causative or declarative. It's causative or declarative, and it's normally taken by most writers as just simple cow, which is like a uh, just a simple statement. But if it's taken as a hyphil, what it means is today I declare that you are my begotten one. It's an emphasis on his deity. He's not begotten at that point. He is declared before all the nations to be the eternal Son of God. And it is a declaration of his deity and his right to rule. So Jesus comes. God says, I have installed my king. And that happens at the second coming. And then Jesus relates this decree that God the Father has declared him to be his son, that he has declared that he is the eternally begotten one. And then uh, God the Father speaking again in verse 8. You have to watch. What's going on? He said to me, quote, and everything from that quote down through the end of verse 8 is what God said to, this, God the Father said to God the Son. You are my Son. Today I have installed you and announced that you are my begotten one. Ask of me and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance. Now wait a minute. This is sometime in the future, and God says to the, God the Father says to God the Son, "I'm installing you on Mount Zion. Ask of me now, and I will give you the nations as my inheritance." So at this future point in time, Jesus is going to ask the Father for the nations as his inheritance. Has that happened yet? No, it hasn't. He's not asking for it. He doesn't ask for it until a future time. That means there's no kingdom now. There's no kingdom until he asks for the possession and the inheritance. And so what we get out of Psalm 2 is the fact that this future king who is going to rule and reign is a divine king. We skip down to verse um, verse 9. or Back up. Verse 10. Excuse me. Today I will surely give the nations your inheritance at the very ends of the earth as your possession, that God the Son will possess all of these, all of these kingdoms. Then when we look at, and I didn't have it up on the, up on the overhead, but if you look down in uh, the remainder of the verse, it indicates, uh, the whole chapter indicates the eternality of this person. So we see that he's divine, he's eternal, and in order to get the eternality, an eternal king, it can't be a truly human king. And this takes us back to the Davidic covenant. The Davidic covenant was given in 2 Samuel 7, uh, 12 and following when God the Father promises to David an eternal seed. Look at verse 13 on the overhead. God has promised that he will have a descendant in verse 12, and then about that descendant he says in verse 13, He shall build a house for my name, that is the temple, he's referring there to Solomon, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So the throne that is mentioned in Psalm 2 goes back to the Davidic covenant throne. Now, to have an eternal throne means one of two things. You have an eternal line of succession. You just keep having children. They can be your successors. Or it culminates in one who has eternal life. 
and will never die. And that is the solution. The Davidic covenant then is fulfilled in one who in himself is eternal. Second Samuel 7:16. You and your house and your kingdom shall be established forever before you. Your throne shall be established forever. So when we put Second Samuel together with Psalm 2, we realize that the king that comes, who is given the dominion and the power, is must be more than simply a man. He must be a combination of humanity and deity. Now, now, what are we getting from all this? Let's back up a minute before we wrap up and figure out where we're going. That what we've seen from Daniel 7 is that there's a time lapse before the, the coming Messiah is given the kingdom. In Psalm 2, we learn that this king is more than just a human king. He is a divine, he is both divine and human. And there is also a time lapse before he is given the kingdom. And that that has not yet happened. He has not yet received it. And then the next thing we pick up, let me back up a few slides. The next thing we learn from Psalm 2 is in verse 9. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. Now that phraseology, that imagery of breaking them with a rod of iron is then picked up in Revelation. Revelation chapter 2, verses 26 and 27. Revelation 2 is talking to the churches. Remember, this is part of the seven letters to the seven churches at the beginning of Revelation. And at the end of of one of these letters, Jesus says, He who overcomes and keeps my works until the end, to him I will give power over the nations. An overcomer is not a believer. An overcomer is a believer who advances to spiritual maturity. And then in verse 27, there's a quote from Psalm 2. He shall rule them with a rod of iron. So what we see in Revelation 2 is that the the successful believer who advances to spiritual maturity is the one who will rule and reign with Christ in this rod of iron rule at the millennial kingdom. So now let's put all that together. That what is happening today is that Jesus Christ, during the session, is waiting for a people to be prepared who will be those who rule with him during this millennial king, uh, kingdom. It is not the Jews that are ruling with him, because this Psalm 2 is applied not to Jews, but to church-age believers. So the way you are being prepared to rule and reign with him, one way you're being prepared is through your spiritual gifts. I don't know what they call it in the Navy, but when you enlist in the Army, you're given an MOS. And that is your basic function, your basic skill level and training, what you specialize in. In the same way, when you're saved as a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you're given a spiritual MOS, and that's a spiritual gift. Whether it's teaching or evangelism, mercy, service, administration, whatever it is, and your responsibility is to grow to maturity. It's not to spend a lot of time in... in uh, uh, introspective analysis, trying to figure out what your spiritual gift is, taking a bunch of tests to figure out what it might be, that's ridiculous. You just grow to spiritual maturity and your gift will become evident. It will become manifest. Whether you can identify it or name it or not is not relevant. You don't have to, you don't have to know what your talent is for it to be displayed as a result of spiritual growth. By using that under the filling of the Holy Spirit, then you mature and that maturity prepares you to rule with Christ during the millennial kingdom. So I hope that gives you some perspective. Now, next time we're going to come back, pick up Psalm 110, see how Psalm 110, Psalm 132 fit together, tie that to Acts 2 and Hebrews, and by the time we finish next time, we should pretty much have an understanding of how the New Testament writers are using this Old Testament imagery to help us learn why the session is important and what is being accomplished during the session with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we do thank you for this opportunity to study your word this morning, to come to a great understanding 
of your plan and purposes, the panorama of what you are doing in human history as you are working during this age through the church age believers to mature and to train us that we might be a people prepared to rule and reign with you during the future millennial kingdom. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning that is unsure of their eternal life or uncertain of their eternal destiny, we pray that right now they would make that sure and certain. All you have to do right where you sit is to believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins. The scripture is clear. It's not a matter of works. Titus 3.5 says it's not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us. It's not your good deeds, religious activity. It's not your morality that matters. That is totally and completely irrelevant. The only thing that matters is the righteousness of Jesus Christ and whether or not you possess that righteousness. Scripture teaches that that righteousness is imputed to us at the instant of faith alone in Christ alone. When you believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins and that that is all that is necessary for salvation, you are given instantly the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And on that basis, you are declared just. You are justified by faith alone and given eternal life. It all happens simultaneously and instantaneously with your expression of faith in Christ. So right now, right where you sit in the privacy of your soul, you can determine your eternal destiny. Father, we thank you for the things that we have studied this morning. We pray that you would challenge us with them. In Jesus' name, amen.